As I said, we're going to cover 38 years. And the way that this starts out, okay, is they've consecrated the temple, everything's in order, the law's been given, everybody has their assigned place uh, within the marching uh, order. They have their designated campsites within the camp of Israel, their assigned responsibilities. Everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, okay? And so now it's time to go. It's the second year, second month after they left Egypt. And what we're going to see happen here is, you know, when, when they were brought out of Egypt, brought out of the world, if you will, there was resistance. There was uh, the attempt to stop what God was wanting to do and stop God's salvation of his people. But now we're in a different spot where we're out of the world, we're out of Egypt, we've got everything prepared, the worship, the tabernacle, the structure. We no longer have a group of people that have just been pulled out of a, a land, a foreign land. We now have the establishment of a nation. Their king is God, then Moses and the elders, and there's leaders under them of the thousands and hundreds and tens. So there's a governmental structure, there's a moral code, there's a spiritual code. Everything is there for this group of people now to be a structured, thriving, prosperous, blessed nation, enjoying the fullness of what God has given to them, okay? And this parallels our lives with Christ in that the Lord has given us in Christ exceedingly great and precious promises. We have a promised land and that's that abundant life in Christ. And it's in the here and now, not just in eternity. So this is all afforded to us. But what we will see is now as there's a shift to actually enter into this new life, as a nation, as the people of God, the chosen people, and all that God has for them, now there's a whole new source of opposition and fighting that comes up to try to rob God's people of God's plans for their life. And this happens with us as Christians as well. Time and time again, when we step out and say, okay, Father, I am gonna follow your leading, there's always going to be somebody or something that is going to try to stop you from doing God's will. There's always going to be something that's going to try to stop you from enjoying God's best for your life and for your relationship with him. It's always going to happen. It takes us all the way back to the garden, right? Perfect setting, perfect place, perfect relationship, perfect people. Everything's great. Satan's right there to try to destroy what God has blessed Adam and Eve with. That's what he does. That's his MO. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy, John 10.10. So we'll see that kind of play out. And I want to encourage you. For you, when God is speaking to you and encouraging you to do something, and I'm not talking about just ministry, Okay, following the will of God goes way beyond ministry. It's loving your neighbor. It's treating your wife, you know, as a precious vessel. It's loving your children, not provoking them to wrath. It's being kind, being loving, exemplifying the nature of Christ. There's a lot of things that God calls us to do. Forgiving somebody who's offended us, and the list goes on. Anytime 
that we try to step out, somebody or something is going to try to get in the way of it. So what I want us to do is to begin in chapter 10, verse 11. All right. And this just gives us the time frame. And uh, we'll do 11 through 13. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. Now you might go, well, wait a minute, this isn't the first time they set out. Right, but this is the first time they've set out with this structure and this order that God has given them. All right, this is the first time this has happened. So they're heading out and they go into the wilderness of Paran. Now, chapter 11, all right, verse 1, they're in Paran. Understand, this group has traveled a whopping three days, okay? That's, that's how long they've been going, three days. And so it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, the anger his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera because, or the burning place, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So you had apparently people in this group where God's going, okay, here we go. We're ready. Let's go home. Let's go to where I have blessings and a land flowing of milk and honey for you. Let's go at it. And they start marching for three days and all of a sudden they're just starting to whine and complain. Probably liked just sitting where they were at, being comfortable, had what they needed. God was providing for them and they didn't want to go. And so they're complaining about their misfortunes. And I think about this as like, what misfortunes do they have to complain about? You know, what bad did they get? Was it being delivered from Egypt? That's good. Was it the destruction of the Egyptian army and protecting their lives? No, that's good. Was it giving them food, manna, water, and the blessings of God? No, that's good. Anything bad that happened was a result of their sin and their rebellion. And, you know, I've been a Christian for 50 years and been around Christians. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes we get in that place where we're in a tough spot and we're going through something. And rather than looking and putting the blame where it belongs on myself, I want to put it on somebody else. And maybe you've heard people, you know, blame God for something that's going on in their life. And you can look and you see what's going on in their life. And it's like, it ain't God that's got the problem. It's you. But we don't like to look at that. And a lot of times, too, we get settled in and we don't want to necessarily move. We don't want to go. It's easy to just stay put. And a lot of Christians do that in their walk with the Lord. I've heard it called, you know, the frozen chosen. You know, they just, they're pew warmers. They don't do a whole lot. They come to church and they go home. But 
the fruit and the growth in the relationship with the Lord and, and the fruit of the Spirit being born through their lives, so you don't really see much. That's not what the Lord has for us. He wants more. So God judges them for whining. And then in chapter 11, verse 4, we have a new dynamic. And this is just, you know, like the next day kind of thing almost, or a couple of days. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again. So the rabble, that's the mixed multitude. These are people who are in slavery in Egypt. And when God was delivering Israel, they're like, you know what? I'd rather go with them than stay here in Egypt. So I'm heading out. So they weren't Jews. They weren't following God per se, but they wanted to be a part of what God was doing and be around God's people. And so there they go. And uh, when they start complaining, the people of Israel also start complaining and whining again. And it says, oh, that we might or oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. Now listen to this. That cost us nothing. Oh, it cost you something. You may have not paid for it with cash, but you paid for it with your blood, sweat, and tears. You just forget that. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This is despising God's provision. Now remember, we'll see this very shortly. This is only supposed to be a short jaunt, okay? Not 40 years. But because of their sin and all, it was a lot longer. They would have been able to enjoy the, the fruit of the land much sooner if they hadn't rebelled. But here they are. You've got this mixed multitude. And they start longing for the things of Egypt, the things of the world. And when you think about this, we as believers are kind of a mixed multitude, individually and corporately, okay? There are people in the church who are not believers. And as such, their heart and their desires are for the things of the world. And when they begin to pursue those things, there's a tendency to drag the saints along with them. Or when they start to complain, the saints will complain too. But even within us as individuals, I have a mixed multitude. I've got my spiritual man and I've got the old man. And boy, there's times where God's wanting me to go in one direction. And that old man's like, I don't want to go there. I like this. And I remember when. And I want to be in charge of what I want to do. And I want my sinful nature to be in control. And then now I've got this battle. At least I hope I have a battle. You know, I don't want to give in to this thing. But it's seeking to draw me away from what God wants. And we need to be careful as individuals in the church for those who begin to complain and have a heart for the Lord. I mean, a heart for the world and seek to drag us away from the things of God. And we see this a lot. And Dan talked about it this morning, the progressive church movement. Okay, progressive Christianity, where it's trying to fuse, and Moses will deal with this too, fuse the things of the world with the things of God, and it does not work. Okay, so we've got this happening, and so Moses is at the breaking point. Okay, in verse 14, he says to God, I am not able to carry all this people. 
The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. He's like, God, I can't do this anymore. I cannot handle this. For the last two years, they complain, they fight, they gripe, they disobey. They just are totally just pig-headed. And I want you to just take me out. Just kill me. I'll be happy. We're good, you know. You ever felt that way? Where you're just like, Lord, just take me home. I'm done. God in his goodness says, okay, I'm going to give you 70 guys. Now, he's already given 70 to judge to help Moses with that. Now this is 70 elders to help with just the general dealings with the people. Okay, just the day-to-day stuff. And so he does that. And then God says to Moses, I'm going to provide food. They want food. They want meat. They're going to get meat. I'm not going to give them one day of meat. I'm not going to give them a week. I'm going to give them a month. And it's going to come out their nostrils. They are going to be inundated with meat. And God sends swarms of quail. And there are recordings, there's records, historical records of these swarms of quail that they follow whatever that airstream that goes up along the Red Sea and all. And there's this migration pattern and it can be humongous. And so that's what was going on here. So God provides it and they're getting all this stuff, all this quail. And while they're eating it, God sends a plague. And he begins to discipline them and punish them for their sin and their, their contempt for the Lord. All we've got is a stupid manna. We're sick of it. Okay, you're despising what God has given you. And so God actually, through the plagues, takes some of their lives. And in verse 34, it says, In verse 34, it says, Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. So that name, Kibroth Hatava, means the graves of craving. Okay? When we crave the things of sin, it will pay off in death. It may not be a physical death, but it can be our spiritual death, death of a relationship with the Lord, death of relationship with other people, death of dreams, death of hopes, death of usefulness, all sorts of things. Whatever sin hits, it's going to bring destruction. And this makes me think of um, back in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. What it says there is that, you know, God doesn't tempt anybody. The temptation is when we're led away by our own desires, our cravings, and then that gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it leads to death. And so this is that thing that the enemy wants to use in our lives is to bring in that compromise and that contempt for what God's doing and wanting something else or longing for the world because he knows it's going to bring damage to what God wants to do. Again, just go back to the garden, right? They were lured by what they saw. It looked good and it seemed good for food and it would make you wise like God. 
okay. And so they had the desire, they acted on it, and boom, death came. We don't want to go there. So this just happens in a few days. And then on the heels of this, chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, they go against Moses and say, you know what, what right do you have to rule over us? And it says in verse one, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. That would make sense, right? Um, so we'll, we'll just say that in case we didn't get it the first time around. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? You know, Miriam was a prophetess. And Aaron spoke for the Lord. He was the high priest. Has, not, uh, has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the, Mo, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out. Uh, you three to the tent of meeting. And what ends up happening is God says, look, when I speak to you or others, it's in visions, it's in dreams, but that's not the way I speak to Moses. It's face to face, mouth to mouth. It's direct communication. Two people talking to each other. It's very different. And in all probability, this is talking about Zipporah, okay, the Cushite woman, because we don't have a record that Moses had two wives or that he even married a second time. So there's nothing wrong with her, but a lot of people think that this was just a pretext because Moses has given 70 men uh, leadership over the nation. And, you know, this is, this is kind of infringing on their power. It's like, wait a minute, you know, what about us? You know, who made you king, basically? We're just as good as you, Moses. When we step out into the things of God and try to pursue the things of God, even our own families will seek to dissuade us, will seek to condemn us and say, you know what, you, 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 you're not worthy of this. You can't do that. We'll even condemn ourselves. Have you ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand, but I have where the Lord will have me do something and I can look at myself and the enemy will look at me and go, do you really think you have any right to do that? Do you really think God wants to use you? Do you think you have the ability to do things for God after what you've done? Not a fun place to be. When uh, I planted a church and one of the oppositions that I came from was from an uh, extended family member. Um, and her accusation, if you will, was, you've never attended seminary. You don't have a right to be in ministry, not as a pastor. And my response was, I went to the same seminary as the disciples. Holy Spirit University, you know, that's just the way it is. You didn't have seminaries. There's nothing wrong with them. But, you know, we put God in a box and we judge people according to those boxes. When God wants to use you, even your own family, you know, we're told in the book of John that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. You know, they thought he was off his rocker. 
So we're going to have opposition even from within our own homes. So now we get to chapter 13 and we've got all these hiccups that are going on. And now they're finally here at the border of Canaan. All right. And it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Joshua and Caleb were two of those. Okay. And we know the story, right? Now, what Deuteronomy tells us is that God sent them because the people wanted it. So they get to the border of the promised land. They get to the border. They're right on the entrance of where they're supposed to go in and take God's goodness, okay? And they look at it and go, hmm, well, let's let's consider this. Why don't we we send some folks in and check this out, you know? We want want to make sure it's okay before we go in. We want to know what we're dealing with. And it says that it seemed good to Moses. And so God says, okay, you want to do that? You're not going to take me at at face value. You're not just going to do what I tell you to do. You want to make sure it's okay. All right, you can go make sure it's okay. And we do that sometimes, don't we? God may put something on our heart and we go, well, I don't know. You know, I just, I don't know, God, you know, let me, let me think about, let me pray about it. Okay. Let me pray about it, God. Um, It's like, if he tells you to do something, just do it. Yeah, we want to make sure that it's him. But we have so many excuses because of our fear. Can I really trust God? Can I really bank on him to carry me and help me? I don't know. Let me see if it's okay first, God. You know, there's uh, a guy... um, Oh, now I can't remember his name. Brother Yoon. No, that's not, that's the wrong one. That's the other guy. Um, there's a book called The Heavenly Man. And he's, he got, he's Chinese. He got saved in communist China and ended up because of being persecuted and tortured and all in, in, for being a Christian and a pastor of an underground church. He had to flee uh, to the West with his family. And it amazed him the mindset of missionary and ministry work in the West. Because in China, when God gave you a calling to do something, you said, yes, sir, and you did it. But here in the West, God gives you a calling. It's like, okay, I got to raise support. I have to make sure I've got a retirement plan in play. I've got to make sure that I've got dental and medical insurance. I've got to make sure that I have a means of providing for my, and there's all these things that we go, well, before I obey, let's just get some stuff in place. Let's check this out first, God. It blew up in their face because they get in there and we know how this goes. They go in and it's awesome. But 10 of them come out and go, yeah, this is a great place, but there is no way we can take this. It's not going to happen. When you look at verse 27, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, 
and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And then I love Caleb here. But Caleb quieted the people. So now the people are, oh, and so Caleb quiets them and says, okay, look. He says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. The problem was where they were focusing. The 10 and the people were focusing on the challenges rather than on the Lord. Caleb and Joshua were focusing on the Lord and they're looking at it going, no problem. David and Goliath, right? Saul and the people of Israel looking at Goliath going, there's no way. It's not happening. David looks and says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the army of the living God? Let's go at it. You know, the old saying, me and God make a majority. And they stepped out. He stepped out. And Joshua and Caleb were right there. It's like, it's not about what we can do. We can do it because God said to do it. And he said he gave us the land. Let's go. I want to go home. I'm tired of manna too. I want some of these grapes. I want some of the fatness of this land. Let's go for it. I love Caleb. He gets his own mountain when he goes into the land, you know. God blesses him. But the people rebel. And they say, forget it. We're not going in. Verse 3 of chapter 14 why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? That is dangerous. God's bringing us in to kill us. He said, I'm bringing in to bless you. You're bringing us in to kill us, what they're saying. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, Moses began to intercede. And Joshua and Caleb are arguing and saying, we can do this. They want to kill Joshua and Caleb. And so, verse 17, And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. That is incredible right there. Just as you have forgiven the people from Egypt until now. Lord, don't change. Please have mercy on them. Give them grace according to your love, not according to what they deserve. And God answers and he says, okay, I will bring them in. I'm not going to destroy them, but this generation will not make it him. Because they saw what I did in Egypt. They saw everything I've done since Egypt. And they look at this and they go, we can't trust God. And because of that, they will not enter in. And then he says um, in verse 30, Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And get this, but your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Because they were saying, God, you're going to kill our little ones. 
You're going to destroy our little babies, our little sons and daughters. God's like, all right, you know what? They're going to enjoy it. I'm bringing them in. I'm protecting them. I'm going to give them the blessing that I was going to give you. And you rejected it. So your children are going to see my goodness and my grace. And so God forgave, but there was also judgment. So as we finish up in verse 14, the people go, oh, okay, God, we sinned, we sinned. All right, we will go up. We'll go take the land. And God says, no, I told you, you're not going to. Moses says, don't do it. God's not with you. Well, we're going to do it anyway. And they go into the land with the army and they get their tails whipped. And then they're complaining and they're whining. It's like, God told you not to. That's that rebellious attitude. And anytime we rebel against the things of God and try to do things our own way, it's always going to come back to bite us. It's always going to be for our bad, not our good. So we've got all this garbage going on. And now they're turning back into the wilderness. Here you are. I mean, imagine this. You buy, not, okay, not buy. You are given a multi-million dollar estate. And the key is put in your hand. And the person who purchased that for you says, you go in, that's your home. And you get there and you look at that and go, I can't clean this thing. It's so big. How am I going to pay the electrical bill? I don't know. That's a lot of water for a water bill. I can't do that. And you've got all these excuses and you're standing there right at the door. Maybe even you go in and you look around and go, wow, that's a great house. But I can't, I can't afford this. I can't do it. It's like, it's given to you. You think God will take care of everything else? Oh, I can't do that. And you go out, you close the door, lock it, hand the key over to the person who gave it to you, and you walk back out on the streets. Isn't that crazy? And that's what Israel did. They despised the goodness of God because they were afraid and they were looking at themselves and their ability rather than the goodness and promises and abilities of God. Big difference. When you're doing the things of God, never look for your own ability. You can't do it. That's the whole point. So when you can't do it, that means when it's happening, God is doing it. And he gets the glory, and all you have to do is just follow. He'll take care of the rest. Somebody once said, what we strive to attain, we strive to maintain. If we're trying to do it, we're going to have to keep it going. But if God's doing it, then he'll keep it going. We don't have to worry about it. So we have them wandering out into the desert again. And then during this time... Korah of the tribe of Levi, of the family of, of Moses, okay, he incites a rebellion. And in verse, or in chapter 16, verse 12, listen to what Korah and the people that he rose up in rebellion uh, with had to say. It says, and Moses sent to, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? That's speaking of Egypt, okay? To kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself out a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing milk with milk and honey. 
and not given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will, will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come out. And that's the two that would not go with the rest of the group. And Moses was angry with them. But the attitude that's portrayed here from Korah and from these guys is, look, you took us out of a perfectly good place. You brought us into this dump. You haven't brought us into a land flowing of milk and honey. And look what we got to deal with. Who made you king over us anyway? But why are they in this situation? It's not his fault. It's not Moses' fault. It's their fault. But because things aren't going the way they want, they're going to pin the blame on Moses. And they're going to try to take the authority from Moses and run things their own way. And there's that twisted mindset looking back at the things of the world going, oh, that was a great time. That was a great place to live. No, it wasn't. You don't remember. You're just remembering the good, not the bad. And so God says, all right, get Korah and all the folks together and make sure the congregation is separated from them. And Moses says, okay, look, if God is with me and not with you, may something incredible happen, like the earth open up and swallow you whole. And guess what happened? That's what happened. Boom. And everybody saw it and everyone went, oh man, God is God and God is great, right? We're going to follow God. No, that's not what happened. So now the rest of the people of Israel in verse 41 go, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Moses did not kill them. God killed them. And it was very clear why God killed them. He judged them for their sin and their rebellion and their obstinacy against God. But do they look at that? No, they're blaming somebody else. They're blaming Moses. And so what ends up happening is God says, all right, look, we're going to settle it once for all that the tribe of Levi and Aaron's family is the line that is to be the priesthood. So everybody have the leader of every single tribe come together and bring a staff. We're going to put it in the in the tabernacle, and then the one that buds, that's the one that God chooses. Who's budded? Aaron's. Nobody else's did. And so that was put into the, uh, into the ark, and it was kept as a testimony. God's saying, I have chosen Moses, I have chosen Aaron, and that's the way it is. So we have all this opposition coming from all over the place, trying to screw up the things that God wants to do. I wish it would be easy when we try to follow the Lord, but it's not. There's enemies within and without who try to stop us. Now, I want to talk about this in chapter 19 very briefly because it is very pertinent for where we're at today. Um, the law of the red heifer, okay? So in chapter 19, it says that for the purification of the priesthood, and of the people, you had to have the ashes of a red heifer. They were, the, the red heifer was sacrificed, and then the ashes were collected, and it was mixed with water and used to anoint the priests and the people for atonement. All right? Now, why is this something that's of great interest today? All right? So, according to history, from this time here, 
to the second temple period of, uh, that Herod built, the second temple that Herod built, there were only nine red heifers. So all those ashes were used sparingly over the course of, of the nation's history for the purification of the priesthood and the people. Now, according to rabbinical tradition, with the coming of the 10th red heifer, <coughs> pardon me, the 10th red heifer, Messiah would come. Okay? Now, that's rabbinical tradition, not biblical. But that's what the rabbis believe. Has anybody ever heard of the Temple Institute in Israel? Um, okay. So the Temple Institute in Jerusalem over the course of several years, has studied and studied and studied and remade the temple artifacts for the third temple. So if you go to the Temple Institute, I used to go there off and on uh, when we lived over there and even before when we just visited. Um, but you can see the priestly garments. You can see the table of showbread. You can see the bronze laver. It's all there. It's the real deal. It's not... Um, it's, the, the purpose is for the use of temple worship in the third temple, okay? When you're coming out of the old city and dropping down into where the western wall is in the temple mount, this, the, the menorah, the golden menorah, is under bulletproof glass. So you walk out of the old city and it's right there before you go down into the temple mount. Now here's the thing. And they have been working for years to get everything ready to build the third temple. And for the Antichrist to desecrate the temple, there has to be a temple. Okay, the abomination of desolations that Jesus spoke of. So, last September, a rancher in Texas, after a lot of work, many, many years of trying to do this, working with rabbis, sent five red heifers to Jerusalem. And they are under watch at this time, making sure that they are without blemish. No spot, not a gray hair, not a white hair, not a black hair. Can you imagine having that job? Okay, it's your turn to go out and check every hair on that cow today. All right, it's gonna be a long day, you know, and you got your magnifying glass, but that's what they're doing. Complete purity, no blemishes, pure red. They have five of them. And so what they've said is, if one comes out as being pure and without blemish, then by October of this year, they will be ready to offer the sacrifice of the red heifer. They will have ashes and be ready to purify the priesthood. They've been trying to figure out the priestly line for some time because Herod destroyed the genealogies so that nobody could question his right to the throne. So there's a lot of work that they've been trying to go through. But there is the pursuit of building the third temple and getting the priesthood ready. And that's incredible. So here we are 3,000 plus years later and this is coming up again, okay? So just a, a thing to keep your uh, eyes open on. And then in chapter 20, uh, we're now 40 years in the wilderness, okay? Miriam, she dies, all right? She's not going into the promised land. 
And then there's the waters of Meribah again. <clears throat> now this is the place where they didn't have water. They were complaining and griping when they began the journey 40 years ago. And God told Moses to strike the rock and water would come. All right. <clears throat> Pardon me. So look at what it says in verse 8. God says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So in verse 10, look at what Moses and Aaron do. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And water came out abundantly, so God was taking care of the people. And the congregation drank, and the livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Boys, you need to talk. He says, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them, he showed himself holy. So now, 40 years later, they're thirsty again in the same spot. And God says to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. Now remember, Paul tells us that this rock is a picture of Jesus. All right. So at the beginning, when the rock was struck, the water flowed and the people were saved. They were refreshed. When Jesus was struck on the cross and his blood flowed and the Holy Spirit was given, that was, that was a done deal, okay? Once and for all. All Moses had to do was speak to the rock and the water would flow. In like manner, Jesus does not need to be crucified again. He does not to be struck again. All anybody has to do is speak to the rock and they will receive the living water. In Hebrews, when you had people who were wanting to go back under the law and the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? You're, when you're trying to do this and go back under the law, then you're trying to crucify Jesus again. You can't do that. You can't do that. You just speak to Jesus. Look to him. And we'll see that in just a minute. Look to him and you'll be saved. And then from that point, Edom won't let them pass. God takes Aaron's life. And I mean, think about this picture. So they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God says, Moses, I want you to get your brother Aaron. I want you to get your, your uh, nephew, Eleazar. We're going up on the mountain. And Aaron, you're not coming down. Oh, man. Think about Eleazar going, oh, great, I'm going to my dad's funeral. Moses, I'm going to my brother's funeral. And the three of them go up with God, and only two of them come down because of Aaron's sin and not obeying God. Moses will also not go into the promised land. Chapter 21 the bronze serpent. The people are complaining again. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food, no water. And this is right after he's provided water. And listen to this. We loathe 
this worthless food. They're contemptible to God. Or they're they're uh, sustaining uh, in their attitude toward God. And so God strikes them with poisonous vipers, serpents. And God says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus refers to this as a picture of himself. Because the only thing the people who had sinned against God had to do to be saved was in faith of what God had said, just look to the serpent. That picture of judgment that was raised up and they would be healed. They would be saved. That's all you got to do. Believe what God says and act on it. And so it is with the cross. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John 3. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up and will draw all men unto him. So Jesus is saying, all people are going to need to do is obey what my father says and look to me in faith that my sacrifice is sufficient to save them. It's only a matter of faith. So God is pointing to Christ through all of this. And then to finish up numbers, we'll just look at real briefly, um, or we'll cover uh, chapters 22, uh, 23, and 24, and 25. Okay, Balaam, all right? So this is what happens. The enemies of God are not having success in destroying the people of God. They're doing a pretty good job of ruining their own relationship with the Lord, but the enemies aren't. And so you have Balak, the king of Midian, go, all right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get Balaam, who has a relationship with this Yahweh. And I know that whoever he curses is cursed and whoever is blessed is blessed. I'm going to hire him to curse the people of God. So you're going to get a, pre, a prophet of God to curse the people of God. I guess if you're in a last ditch effort, you know, you do what you do. So he sends messengers to Balaam. Hey, I'll pay you a ton of money. Okay. And so Balaam goes, okay, let me ask God about this. And you go, really? Okay. So anyway, he does. And God says, no, you can't go with them. So they come back later. We'll give you more money and more stuff. Can I go with them, God? Okay, you can go with them. You ought to question that, okay, when God changes his mind on something. And so we see a donkey smarter than Balaam, all right? So the donkey is trying to save Balaam's life because there's an angel that's going to kill Balaam. And then God opens up his eyes and he sees the angel there. And he's like, after he's had a conversation with the donkey, of course. And so he does this. And then God says, all right, now you can go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. And so every time that Balaam would prophesy, it would always be a blessing upon the people of Israel, which hacked Balaam off a lot. All right. So ultimately, this isn't working. So chapter 25, this is what happens at Baal Peor. Balaam goes, I'll tell you what, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how God himself will take them down. You get all your loose women, send them into the camp and have them seduce the men and then set up their little gods for worship and 
God will do the rest. Don't you worry about that. And sure enough, God did. Now, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, when God has Israel wipe out Midian, Balaam dies with the Midianites. He's judged with them for what they've done. Okay, so he does not come out on top. Balaam is brought up in Jude, verse 11, because of his attitude of trying to use his position for God for personal gain. This is something that is so common in the church today, where people use godliness and ministry as a as means of gain. And you look at the homes that some of these televangelists live in and pastors and ministry leaders and stuff, and it's just exorbitant, you know, private jets, all sorts of stuff. That's Balaam profiting from the things of God or trying to. And then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, when Jesus is talking to the church of Pergamum, he brings Balaam up again because of that prophet mindset, trying to get money for ministry, but then also putting a stumbling block in front of the people. There were people in the church of Pergamum who were coming in as part of the body, but they were putting stumbling blocks in front of the people and causing them to fall in the relationship with God, just like Balaam did with the people of Israel. And we have that so much today in the world that we live in, the church that we live in. There are so many people who are putting stumbling blocks in the way of the saints of God to bring them down and to bring them out. They have selfish ambitions. They have their own agendas. And the people of God, if they're not careful, are going to fall prey to it. And they do fall prey to it. So, all right, we have six minutes. Deuteronomy, very quickly. Deuteronomy means second law. Now it's time to go in for the second time, the second generation, okay? And I want you to know that Jesus quoted from and referenced the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. This was the go-to. When he was being tempted by Satan, Deuteronomy, that's where he went. When he taught Deuteronomy, he used it for his personal life, he used it for his teaching. Deuteronomy, and there's power in this book. And it's sad, it says in verse two, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. 11 days. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all the Lord had given him to command and to command them and basically to go, to go in. And it says that he explained the law. That's important because the word there for explain means to dig or a well. He went deep and he taught them the law of God before they went in because God wanted to bless them and he didn't want them to fail. He didn't want them to be hurt. And what I want you to consider here, I want to leave you with this. Moses in chapter four commands the people to obey the Lord. And he says, and now listen, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. 
You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So don't add or subtract, because if you do, you're not going to be keeping what God wants you to keep. And he says, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. That's where God judged the people for having sex with uh, Midianite women and the idol worship and all of that junk and striking them down. If you go down to verse 21, Moses says, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I would not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is glorifying, uh, is giving you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. So there's two things being said here. All right, and in the middle, he's talking about there is no other God on the face of this planet that has ever done for you what God has done. There's no other God that's done for any other nation, any other people, what God has done for you. You are special, you are loved, you are precious. God has great things for you. Don't do what they did at Baalpur. Don't have your own idols. Don't go after the things of the world. And, you know, Paul talks about um, thinking that, no, you can handle it. You know, I, I won't fall. He says, you know, let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Okay. And I could see the people going here. Well, I'm not going to do that. That's horrible. There's no way. And so Moses closes his thought. He says, no, no, I want you to listen. Okay, yeah, you may not do that, but look at me. I'm not going in. I don't get to enjoy what you get to enjoy. I don't get to be blessed with the things that you're blessed in because I disobeyed the Lord. Okay, so you have the quote, quote, common people who disobey the Lord and you have the leader, the, the great man of God who disobeys the Lord. Neither went in because of sin. And that's a warning to them and a warning to us if we don't obey the Lord, he has to discipline us. He has to judge us. He doesn't want to, right? Like any of us that are parents, I don't want to discipline my kids. I hate it. I, well, I don't do it anymore. You know, they're huge. Um, you know, they're adults and, and whatnot. So, but when they were little, I didn't want to do that at all. I would rather them repent than me have to discipline. But what do you do if there's no repentance? What do you do if there's disobedience and rebellion and sin? We got to deal with it. God wants to bless. And the things that God has for you in our lives are great things. Our relationships with him and with others, opportunities to serve and to be tools in his hands, an abundant life, Jesus says. But be wary that there are enemies within and without that want to steal and kill and destroy that which God has for us. Let's not give the enemy an inch. Paul says, give no place to the devil because you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. All right? God loves you and wants the best for all of us. Father, we praise you that you care about us that you've given everything so that we might have everything in Christ. And we know that the enemy seeks to kill and destroy and to rob us of those things. Lord, help us to obey you, to not forget what you've done for us, to not forget who you are. 
or to think that we can find pleasure and joy and peace and rest in anything outside of you. You know, when everybody left you because of what you were teaching and you said to the 12, are you going to leave too? And they said, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. Lord, where else are we going to go? The option is to wander and we don't want to wander. So help us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.